Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great honor to uh, be the chairman of the panel of the day, the, the, pen, the ultimate panel of the day, the climax of what has been an extraordinary day. And of course, the issue, as Dr. Anthony said, is defense cooperation between the United States and the Arab states. Uh, we have a panel here of experts, and my goal is to give them the maximum time to speak and to handle the maximum number of questions. So we will begin without delay. Our first speaker, I will keep the introductions short since you have magisterial, uh, a magisterial compilation of biographies, is Troy Thomas. Troy Thomas served in the United States Air Force over a distinguished career, culminating as Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Defense Policy in the National Security Council. In that context, he wrote the 2015 National Security Strategy. He was also the senior advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Basically, he was his command action group director. And for those of you cadets and midshipmen, uh, there are some phone calls in a staff that you can delay returning, and there are some phone calls that you should return immediately. And a phone call from the CAG director should be returned immediately, preferably before the phone call is made. Um, so with that, He's currently a senior consultant at the Boston Consulting Group. It's my pleasure to introduce you, uh, retired Colonel Troy Thomas. Oh, thank you, David. <laughs> well, good afternoon, everyone. I am certainly delighted to be sharing the stage which, with such distinguished colleagues. And I'm grateful to the National Council and Dr. Anthony in particular for this opportunity to be with all of you today. My own experience with U.S.-Arab defense cooperation began in 1989 when I was an exchange student to the Royal Saudi Air Force Academy in Riyadh. I was only in Riyadh for a short period, but the relationships that I built then have served me well over several decades of service. It also inspired me the following year to, to lead our Air Force Academy delegation to its first model Arab League here in Washington, D.C., where I met uh, Dr. Anthony. So from the very beginning of my professional career, the value of security cooperation rooted in professional military-to-military -military relationships was always evident, and so too were the challenges. So allow me to give my remarks with my conclusion. The key to effective defense cooperation is not just a willing partner, but an able one. That is, effective defense cooperation depends on more than just shared interests. It requires a shared commitment to developing professional, capable defense institutions institutions that embrace accountability and performance, innovation and modernization, human capital and leadership development. These and other institutional factors are too often overlooked in the discussion about defense cooperation, which is too often fixated on posturing and perception at the expense of institutional performance. But before I say a few things about how to strengthen defense institutions as the most profitable way to improve defense cooperation, Please allow a few words on the case for cooperative security in general and on specific areas for improved U.S.-Arab defense cooperation. To this first point, the strategic benefits of defense cooperation, whether through formal alliances, ad hoc coalitions, or bilateral engagements, always, well, almost always, outweigh the costs and the risks of increased coordination with another country. In defense relationships, in my experience, particularly the several years I spent traveling the world with General Martin Dempsey, are particularly valuable not only managing security risk in a turbulent world, but serving as a shock absorber 
for the relationship when the political path gets bumpy. That said, the value proposition of defense cooperation has not always been clear-cut. Where resistance to it exists, it generally fixates on constraints, both political and operational, that result from the divergent objectives and risk tolerances of the different countries, the so-called national caveats. That is, security relationships of any consequence always require conditional decision-making and compromise to create and sustain the relationship. If you think you can dictate the terms of cooperation, you will always be wrong and you will, always, you will never get the results you seek. Beyond constraints, defense cooperation is also expensive. It's, just not, it's not just the time and energy that goes into maintaining these relationships, but it costs real money to coordinate defense activities, to conduct training and exercises together, and render your forces even modestly interoperable. On the other hand, the most often cited advantages of defense cooperation tend to refer to both capabilities and capacity. Capacity is basically more of the same, more general purpose forces, more lift, more money, more bases. Capability refers to those unique or niche capabilities that certain countries can bring together, whether it's local knowledge or constabulary forces or medical or special purpose forces. But even when countries can't bring much capability or capacity, they may be able to provide a position and a platform that is valuable to advancing shared security interests. That is to say, as was pointed out by General Votel earlier, everyone has something to offer. And all of these factors apply in the U.S.-Arab context, where a deep history of defense cooperation has exposed and experienced all of the risks and all of the rewards. And going forward, the goal should be to maximize the rewards relative to the risks by prioritizing defense cooperation in four areas, air and missile defense, maritime security, cyber resilience, and border control. Together, these four areas serve to strengthen security at the boundary of the state. And in so doing, they guard against the most common avenues of infiltration and attack by external threats, whether from nation states or violent non-state actors. They also contribute the most to the protection of national critical infrastructure, which will increasingly be the focus of hostile actors and in our interconnected world are exceptionally vulnerable. Moreover, these four areas present practical, high payoff domains for defense cooperation with neighbors and more distant partners. And finally, the capabilities required in these four areas are primarily defensive, therefore contributing to your general deterrence posture and to regional stability. But effective defense cooperation in these areas depends heavily on capable defense institutions. Essentially, we need to back back up a strategic investment in the relationship itself with the reforms that are needed to maximize the return on that investment. And yet, the historically evolved complexity of most defense institutions in the country and in the United States threaten to thwart their capacity to both innovate and to change. Therefore, I would argue that the future of U.S. Arab defense cooperation will depend heavily and in large measure on the degree of progress that can be made by regional militaries in four areas, which I would sort of posit as institutional stretch goals for all of our defense institutions. The first is talent management. The foundation of every military is its people. Militaries must recruit and retain top performers at scale. 
The challenge is intensified by the increasing skill requirements as both military equipment and operations increase in complexity. Therefore, armed forces need to do a better job at strategic workforce planning, state-of-the-art qualification measures, and better efforts to manage that talent. Second, sustainable equipment. Defense institutions have to find ways to effectively ensure both the superiority and the availability of their equipment. Too much focus is put on the first at the expense of the, sec the second. This means more agile procurement processes, a greater willingness to share and transfer technology, and a more efficient and holistic approach to sustaining readiness. You have to put the availability of your capabilities, not just the modernization of those capabilities, at the center of the strategic optimization of your defense enterprise. Third, resilient information and communications technology. Resilient ICT will probably be the key enabler for military success in the coming years. The replacement of legacy systems, regular digital cleanups, and investment in efficient state-of-the-art ICT systems have been neglected for far too long. There is a modernization backlog of ICT in our defense institutions. So we need to aim to modernize at every level and build in cyber resilience at every echelon. Fourth and finally is performance management. Performance management of the institution, not just the operational forces, can be very challenging in a defense contact, context, but it can and it should be done. You <laughs> starts with just better cost analysis, transparency, and management. Expose your spending. Know how you're spending your money. You can't imagine how difficult that is for almost every defense institution, and it's a good place to start. Measure your performance, particularly readiness and improve decision-making speed by decreasing both management layers and increasing the spans of control. You'd be surprised how many defense departments go seven layers deep, and at the seventh layer, there's one person supervising one person. It's not fast. We're all too top-heavy, and we're all too slow. We need to become lean and fast. In the future, no military will be able to fulfill its assigned political tasks or cope with the contemporary security challenges we face, or adapt to emerging technologies, or deliver superior performance without breaking new ground in these four areas, and creating the required conditions for the institutional imperatives and reforms that I've outlined here should therefore be a top priority for all military leaders and related political leaders. This work will not earn headlines, but it should be front and center of every strategic dialogue. And in my judgment, professional and modern defense institutions are the foundation on which the future of U.S. Arab defense cooperation will be built. So thank you for your attention. I look forward to your questions, uh, either during the panel or after. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Thomas. It should be noted, so he mentioned four areas for uh, enhanced cooperation, air and missile defense, maritime, cyber and borders. And it should be noted that two, probably two and a half of those are traditionally re regarded as civilian, not military competencies, which points to the, cha the changed nature of warfare and leads to our next speaker, Mr. Nawath Althari. Mr. Nawath Althari is the United Nations counterterrorism specialist representing the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. In that capacity, he leads the United Nations Counterterrorism Center's expert advisory board, Mr. Althari.
Your Highnesses, Excellencies, Distinguished Guests, uh, I'd like to thank Dr. John Duke Anthony and the National Council for having me once again. Uh, much has changed since I had the privilege of addressing you all at this conference last year. My country is well on its way towards a transformation aimed at positioning itself as a key global player on all fronts. You have all seen the headlines about Saudi women being allowed to drive, assuming key positions in the government and private sector, and the rise of global investments and innovative collaborations through the Public Investment Fund and the MISC Foundation. These achievements are even more impressive when one considers the security threats and challenges that the Kingdom continues to face both on a domestic and regional level. Just a couple of weeks ago, brave and resilient Saudi security forces foiled another terrorist plot near the Al Salam Palace in Jeddah. Thankfully, the perpetrator was eliminated, and just this past Thursday, Saudi security forces had dismantled an ISIS cell in Riyadh in connection with a plot to launch a suicide attack on the defense ministry. Not enough can be said about these courageous men who stand and fight for our country. Today, the Saudi security apparatus is considered one of the most formidable in the world, and for those who have tragically perished in the line of duty, may they rest in eternal peace. This past year marked the beginning of a new chapter in U.S.-Saudi defense and security collaborations. This was highlighted by President Trump's historic visit to Riyadh and an unprecedented Arab-Islamic American summit. The historic visit marked the launch of a, the Global Anti-Extremism Center, Etidal, a world-class center to fight online terrorist narratives and counter-extremist content on the web. This is yet another realization of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's vision in transforming the kingdom into a force to be reckoned with in the global fight against terrorism and extremism. Just last Friday, the U.S. State Department approved the sale of an anti-missile defense system to the kingdom. The Pentagon's Defense Security Cooperation Agency said in a statement, this sale furthers U.S. national security and foreign policy interests and supports the long-term security of Saudi Arabia and the Gulf region in the face of Iranian and other regional threats. This deal not only highlights the commitment towards ensuring and maintaining each other's security, but also emphasizes a shared understanding between the U.S. and the Kingdom as to who plays the most destabilizing and threatening role in the region and what must be done to contain and ultimately curb that threat. The ongoing fight against terrorism cannot and does not depend solely upon U.S.-Saudi defense cooperation or U.S.-Arab defense cooperation. The fight is undeniably a global one that requires strong international unity. The global community needs to stand together, and the Kingdom has long realized that utilizing the UN's unique mechanisms and convening power can harness this global will into action. In this regard, this past year, member states of the United Nations approved the creation of a new office aimed at strengthening counterterrorism efforts, which had previously been dispersed among several UN agencies and departments. This office will merge the Counterterrorism Implementation Task Force and the United Nations Counterterrorism Center the main capacity-building arm of the United Nations, established and funded through a Saudi contribution of $110 million, and will be headed by an Undersecretary General, Mr. Vladimir Voronkov. Mr. Voronkov is committed to enhancing the efforts of the United Nations and fulfilling the United Nations Global Counterterrorism Strategy. These efforts not only include assisting nations in developing their own counterterrorism mechanisms and strategies, but goes beyond that into understanding the radicalization process and the foreign terrorist fighters phenomena. In fact, this past July, a study was released that was conducted by Professor Hamid El-Sayed and Mr. Richard Barrett, consultants at the United Nations Counterterrorism Center. This study was aimed at enhancing the understanding of, of the foreign terrorist fighters phenomena in Syria. And in it, they had interviewed 
43 individuals between August of 2015 and November 2016, representing 12 nationalities. This study is the first of its kind for the United Nations. I will, I will not go into the details or findings of the study due to time constraints, but I will provide the link to the National Council and they can post it on their website or Twitter page. Uh, and, and I will also post it on my personal Twitter page as well. I highly recommend that you read this study and encourage attending governments to support such efforts into gaining insight into the life cycles of radicalization. The, kingdoms, the Kingdom and its partners in the United Nations Counterterrorism Center, including the United States, are committed to not only countering terrorism, but understanding its drivers, motivations, and underlying causes to be able to address the root of the problem rather than operate from a reactionary basis. This past month, during the 72nd session of the General Assembly of the United Nations, I was honored to represent the Kingdom in a high-level event hosted by the Prime Ministers of the UK and Italy, as well as the President of France, along with senior leadership from Google. This event was titled Preventing Terrorist Use of the Internet and marked a turning point in public-private partnerships in terms of countering extremist content online. There was a clear commitment made to improve companies' response times for when extremist content is posted to the time it's been taken down. We have the technological capabilities now to demand and expect better. This is truly the next frontier in this ongoing battle. Governments in Silicon Valley need to commit to working together and innovating solutions rather than reacting to how terrorists abuse these platforms. I will leave you with these two recommendations. The first is to engage in this fight on a global level through mechanisms like the United Nations. Even though the international mechanisms in place at the United Nations Office of Counterterrorism, Office of Counterterrorism are stronger than ever, there is still much room for engagement from all governments. The study I was referring to earlier would not have been possible if not for governments allowing the United Nations to interview their captured foreign terrorist fighters. The need to share best practices and to highlight key differences in how to conduct counterterrorism operations from region to region is needed, and the United Nations Office of Counterterrorism provides a one-stop shop for the international community to share this information and to utilize the United Nations in helping them create and implement their own counterterrorism strategies. Finally, it is time for governments and tech companies to realize that the internet cannot be a global recruitment hub for these terrorist groups anymore. More has to be done on both sides of the table, whether it's through the creation of anti-extremism centers such as Etidal in the Kingdom, or through consistent engagement with local offices of Google, Facebook, and Twitter. The need to counter terrorist narratives online and to block their recruitment efforts on mainstream platforms is at an all-time high. Otherwise, we will be dealing with new groups emerging and get caught up in a never-ending cycle rather than breaking the cycle. I am confident in the end that we will prevail. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nawaf. Our next uh, speaker um, would have difficulty getting a visa to the United States today. Born and raised in Lebanon, he has a distinguished career in the United States Army as both a master parachutist and a ranger. Um, one distinguishing characteristic, you never have to ask a man if he is a ranger, he will tell you. And uh, um, we say the R stands for ready, A stands for all the way, N stands for knowledge. Um, he also has combat duty as a master parachutist and ranger. He was the former defense attache in Riyadh. He's a cur current senior military advisor at the State Department Bureau of Middle Eastern Affairs and a recipient of the King Salman Medal for Military Appreciation 
first class. Uh, because of his, I have to tell you that his remarks represent only his own views and not the official views of any agency of the United States government. Please join me in welcoming Colonel Abbas Dehuk. Well, David, thanks for the uh, intro. Um, like the rest of the panel, I'm honored to be amongst them. And uh, thanks to Dr. Anthony and the National Council for the opportunity to speak before you today. I've known, I've known Dr. Anthony since 2009 where uh, both traveled to the UAE with the group of, uh, West, from West Point. I was teaching also at West Point at that time. And some of these cadets today, they're actually combat vets. They served in Afghanistan, and some served in Afghanistan and Iraq. And they still, when I get notes from them, they still talk about that opportunity with Dr. Anthony and the consul that actually went to the UAE. So that's, uh, that's, that's a good thing. I hope that we can, that the consul can uh, keep that up with uh, all the academies as well. So today I'd like to present a couple of factors uh, that describe the defense cooperation paradigm in the Middle East region, and to point a couple inflection points or indicators towards implementing their military element, element power in self-defense, there meaning the Middle Eastern countries. Just like the United States, uh, recipient nations of security cooperation in the Middle East, see security cooperations in terms of security assistance, key leadership engagements, exercises, they see that as an essential component of their national security strategy as well, and also a crucial tool that enables them to advance their political goals, just like we see it here. However, in the, in the United States, we aim, we aim with our security cooperation, we aim for access at the user-operator level. This is our, the, to enhance interoperability with, with security forces. Recipient nations in the Middle East aim to access, or aim for access to political and legislative leadership at the highest level of the government to influence their policy, means, uh, means, means the U.S. policy decisions, and to promote their own political interest, meaning recipient nations' interest. And that's not a bad thing. As such, training and sustainment, or the total package approach to, to security assistance or exercises, may not be as essential as we see it here in the United States. We see it as essential sustainment and being a, um, match, match a doctrine or within a doctrine as essential. They may not see it that way. Um, also, on, while uh, pricing and availability, we talked a little bit about pricing and availability of, of U.S. Uh, articles and service, services are top decision criteria for recipient, recipient nations. That's, that's critical. But localization is the current trend. Their plan to achieve localization is through direct investments and strategic partnership with leading international companies in defense sector. So that's could be U.S., could be other than the U.S. The old new push for localization designed to transfer knowledge and technology to the region and to build jobs, some high-tech jobs, and national expertise in the fields of manufacturing, maintenance, repair, maintenance, repair, and research and development, and that, and also the, to be self-reliant in certain defense articles instead of relying on Western powers for resupply and spare parts. They like to have at least some self-reliance in, in that area as well. Recipient countries are demanding more than co-production or co-development opportunities. They are aiming to incubate for the first time an indigenous military manufacturing industry with further ambitions for exporting defense articles as well, like munition, un unmanned aerial systems, land maritime vehicles, spare parts are within reach for, lo for local production. So as mentioned, recipient nations are aiming for creating their own defense industry and high-paying high jobs are looking for less restrictive partnership as well. Near-peer countries like Russia and China are competing hard for these emerging defense markets throughout the Middle East 
region, offering sufficient near-high technologies and capabilities to counter regional and local threats with little, with, with little to no political strings attached. When I was in my previous job as defense attaché in Russia, my counter, in, uh, in uh, Riyadh, my counterparts, the Russian defense attaché and the Chinese defense attaché are doing the same thing. They're trying to promote their own defense industry and their own defense cooperation. And I tell you, their, uh, their, their Arabic is uh, better than my English. <laughs> so uh, so they're, they're working at it as well. And the, this might be surprising, but the indigenous population, whether adults or youth, has a vote in defense spending and partnership building. Minor vote, but becoming vocal via social media. Some, some of the population see U.S. and uh, articles and services as a promoter for local security, promoter for stability, territorial integrity, and economic prosperity. And some still see it as a burden on their economy and solely for regime protection. Hence, localization is another means to legitimize this defense spending or defense spending. Lastly, I move a little bit to the element of power. The last, last administration's rebalanced policy to, towards the Asia coupled with the, with the current Iranian conventional and non-conventional and malign proxy wars and threats, hedged those Middle Eastern countries, especially the Gulf states, to exercise their own military element of power in self-defense. Starting with the kingdoms of uh, Saudi Arabia publicly displaying the DF-3 or the CSS-2 Chinese ballistic missile for the first time in April 2014 military parade. And that was a, what a thing to see, you know, up close because we have always, a lot of us in the military always wondering about the, the, the Saudi Chinese missiles, and then all of a sudden you see the parading of the Chinese missile. Uh, so that was at the end of the, uh, of the uh, regional military exercise called Saif, Saif Abdullah, the Sword of Abdullah, and that sword also a, a symbol for the element of power in, uh, for, for, the, for Saudi Arabia. So that employment of uh, uh, military element power came to fruition by joining uh, the counter-ISIS campaign. That was Again, like uh, Ambassador Otaibi mentioned, that it was the first one to answer the call when the United States asked the Arab countries. They, uh, at that time, we, United States, wants an Arab face to this counter-ISIS campaign, and the, at least the Arab countries, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Jordan, Bahrain, they answered the call, and they joined the coalition, and, uh, and, and they flew over, over Syria. So that was the, uh, came to fruition when they joined the counter-ISIS campaign over Syria in September 2014, and then forming the, and then they formed the only fighting coalition outside Western powers. It was the Arab coalition to counter Houthi threat in Yemen in March 2015. So the first one was to fly over, uh, over uh, Syria, and then they, they, they actually formed their own coalition and to protect the, uh, you know, their neighborhood. So um, there was the decisive storm followed by the restoring, restoring hope, hope operations. So while military operation now in Yemen uh, at a stalemate, uh, the Arab coalition accomplished its intended missions, finished by stopping the Houthis and Ali Saleh from taking Aden and keeping the Yemen, Yemeni president and his government in power. That, that was also coupled with political win as well by securing uh, UN Resolution 2216 to, uh, to fac facilitate the political process. So secure operation, uh, cooperation, it works, and uh, I'll end it here, and thank you. Thank you, Abbas. It's now a distinct pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Mara Carlin, a former colleague of mine in the Office of Secretary of Defense. 
she had a phenomenal career, culminating as uh, being designated as a Deputy Assistant Secretary for Strategy and Force Development. She's now a professor at the School of Advanced International Studies of Johns Hopkins University. Um, she uh, is the co-author of a must-read article on Iran policy in the current issue of The Atlantic. Uh, and she also is probably one of the very few uh, civil servants to have uh, been briefly mentioned in Mother Jones magazine as well. Um, she is uh, respected within defense circles, within diplomacy circles, and within academia, and uh, she will be respected here, Dr. Carlin. Thanks for that kind introduction, Dave, and uh, thank you all for having me. You know, the challenge of being on the last panel of a really long day is that everyone's mentally exhausted. So I want to help you all wake up a little bit uh, by taking a poll. So this conference is premised on a question. And the question, as you see on the cover of your books, is this. How best to navigate an uncertain present and future? So my question is this. When we are sitting here 10 years from now, Please raise your hand if you think the future will be even more dynamic and unstable in the Middle East. Okay, so that's a great start. I think I saw about 40% or so of the crowd, um, which means we have a, at least a few folks awake at this time. So maybe we can get to that a little bit more in questions. What I'd like to do today is spend just a few moments diagnosing the security environment in the Middle East from a U.S. perspective, because I think that helps us walk really well to how we understand U.S.-Arab defense cooperation in the future. Ten years ago, if you were looking at the region from a place like the Pentagon, as I was, let me tell you a little bit about what we saw. When you looked at the issue of Iran, you thought a lot about the nuclear, pro the nuclear portfolio. And the debate was really not a question of if military force would be used. Instead, it was really when military force would be used. Iranian bad behavior was pretty clear across the region, particularly in killing American servicemen and women uh, across Iraq. And the US steps to try to stymie that were, were pretty limited. <clears throat> if you looked at the Gulf, you saw pretty profound unity on the threat posed by Iran in particular. And at that time, you saw the U.S. national security leadership convening a forum known as the Gulf Security Dialogue to really try to get the region to come together on how the Gulf saw the threats in areas where you might see some meaningful cooperation. Many, in fact, I think, were the ones cited by Troy Thomas in his comments. If you looked at the Levant, you would have seen a continued rotten situation in Syria, one, however, marked by stability. If you recall, you also would have seen the destruction of a covert nuclear reactor in Syria on September 7th, excuse me, September 6, 2007. And if you looked at Lebanon, for example, you would have seen a government and a military that was growing increasingly strong and exerting its sovereignty, and perhaps a weakened Hezbollah. So let's fast forward 10 years and look at where we see the region today. Iran, it's pretty easy to focus on the bad behavior portfolio. We see, as General Votel was talking about earlier today, just a stretch of unhelpful meddling across the region. 
As we look to the Gulf, we see profound divisions over the threats and quite far to go as we think about defense cooperation. As we look to the Levant, it is almost unrecognizable. The bloodshed we have seen in these last few years, I think, shatters many of the paradigms so many of us had. Five million refugees fleeing Syria, six million internally displaced persons, and the terrible, rotten, authoritarian Assad still sitting there. If we look at a group like Hezbollah, we see an entity that has gone all in on a conflict where the mission is probably not nearly as clear or useful for its domestic support. We see a situation where this organization has lost more of its members fighting Arabs than it has fighting Israelis. We also see an organization that has done a pretty masterful job projecting Iranian power and coordinating amongst a host of various actors. And arguably, as we look across the region, we see a situation where both the borders and the stability are increasingly questionable, questioned like never before. So that is brief, that is incomplete. It does not even touch on Iraq. It does not even touch on Yemen. And it does not touch on the US domestic debates going on right now. It also does not touch on how the US views of the global security environment have had to broaden considerably than 10 years from now. 10 years ago, the US was thinking much less about challenges from China or from Russia. Its views across the conflict spectrum were much more limited. It also does not touch on the security environment as it is evolving at a macro scale. I did not speak about how chaotic and competitive the global security environment has become, how power has become more dynamic and diffuse, increased fragility, or even changes in the technical, technological landscape, particularly as it relates to diffusion and proliferation. So I hope that I have painted a picture that warrants a clear-eyed and sober view of what US Arab co defense cooperation can look like. If you subscribe to Foreign Affairs, I have a piece in the latest issue titled, Why Military Assistance Programs Often Disappoint. And perhaps I will leave it at that. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Charlie. And then finally, um, Graham Greene, P.G. Woodhouse, Evelyn Waugh, and Scott Fitzgerald are authors from whom I think most of us will find it useful to read anything they write. To that list, I add Christopher Blanchard. He explains complex issues of the Middle East routinely to members of Congress in a manner that is authoritative and concise. So for that, he deserves both our admiration and a not insubstantial dose of our pity. Please let us hear from Christopher Blanchard. Talk about uh, introductions you can't live up to. Uh, <laughs> a little bit better on paper than in person, my apologies. Um, so uh, thank you, Dave, uh, and thank you, uh, Dr. Anthony, and to the council for having me back here. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Uh, and as always, I'm here in my personal capacity. Uh, and what I'll tell you or share with you uh, are my views and not those of the Library of Congress or, or the US government. Um, in my brief five minutes, and uh, I did uh, agree to try to keep it to that. Uh, I'll review the three points of emphasis that I see right now uh, recurring 
in current U.S. security cooperation programming uh, with the region, um, and the oversight conversations that I'm engaged with, uh, engaged in uh, with my clients um, and many of your representatives up on the Hill. Uh, these are the essential, uh, if less visible, working level components of the by, with, and through strategy <coughs> and policy that General Votel described earlier this afternoon. Um, and they shape the U.S. approach uh, to the key partnerships in the region, including those with, with many of our uh, key uh, government partners uh, as well as non-government partners. So what are those um, three themes or points of emphasis? Uh, first, as we heard from Troy, uh, defense institution building and security institution building really are a, a core uh, central component now uh, of almost all bilateral security cooperation programming that's underway. Um, the U.S. government uh, is seeking to work with its partners um, to develop force concepts and then make force planning and procurement decisions that are based on those sound concepts, all with the goal of helping our partners develop systems and the personnel that they will need to generate forces, to train those forces, equip them, sustain them, and lead them in the field. Uh, from Congress's perspective, what we often hear injected into the, the conversation are questions about affordability and sustainability. And I think given the fiscal picture in many parts of the region, uh, including in some of our uh, you know, traditional sort of high dollar partners in the Gulf, um, questions about affordability and sustainability uh, are important. They're political economy questions. So are the systems our partners uh, are procuring affordable to them, in the, both in the immediate and the longer term? Are they aligned, not just with well-developed force plans, um, but with a, a sense of that fiscal and political economy that's rooted in uh, domestic um, political legitimacy? Do they add sufficient marginal value to the force to justify the cost? And can they be purchased, used, maintained, and repaired reasonably? Are adequate investments being made by our partners to become more self-sufficient in their maintenance and sustainment activities? Um, these are the questions that characterize uh, conversations about the this first theme, defense and security institution building. Secondly, uh, a recurrent theme is, is honing um, essential capabilities, and this is a, consens uh, a consensus definition of that. Uh, obviously, needs vary, uh, and partner input is central. Uh, the U.S. government has its views, but our partners have, have theirs. Uh, but as uh, uh, Mara described, uh, and you heard in other panels, we face agile enemies and persistent asymmetric threats from the Maghreb to Mosul. So those three essential capabilities that recur and really are a consensus um, are centered around counterterrorism, border security, and critical infrastructure protection. In program after program that comes up to Capitol Hill uh, for review, uh, we see requests for uh, and plans to build combat air support, um, mobility of ground forces, resilience of those ground forces, and quick reaction and special operations forces. Um, these are currently, and I would submit, are likely to main, uh, remain the sort of bread and butter, uh, behind the scenes, low profile elements of our defense cooperation. Uh, and they certainly are reflected in the lion's share of U.S. funded assistance, uh, whether through the Syrian Iraq training equip programs or the, uh, the new uh, 1033 assistance that DOD has implemented. 
As components of that, we see an emphasis on, uh, again, as was alluded to, improvements in uh, ISR, improvements in communication. Those are essential uh, for these partner forces that we're seeking to work with, as well as logistics. Can our partners organize, account for, move, share, and replenish the material, machinery, and manpower they need uh, in the fights they face? Lastly, <clears throat> the third theme is professionalism, again, broadly defined. Um, are, uh, is U.S. security cooperation efforts, are U.S. security cooperation efforts encouraging partners to become more accountable, transparent, and prepared to cooperate? Are they capable and willing to be good stewards of the resources they are provided by their governments, the assistance that the United States government provides? Are they transparent and responsible enough to maintain the support of the populations they protect? And are their interagency and international relationships developed enough to allow for success under pressure in complex environments? Uh, Colonel Abbas referred to uh, a desire for less restrictive partnerships. And we hear a lot about conditionality and uh, you hear words like complicity and uh, consequence being thrown around on the Hill a bit more these days. Um, the truth is, or the fact remains, that two key components uh, of the U.S. approach to security cooperation uh, are likely to, to remain central and, in fact, are enshrined in law. And that's respect for civilian control of the military and increased attention to respect for human rights and the law of armed conflict. Um, as I said, those are uh, now uh, required to be components of all U.S.-funded Department of Defense security assistance activities, um, and we do see them being implemented and carried out, uh, again, across that, across that landscape uh, in our programming, uh, as I like to say, from the Maghreb to, to Mosul. Um, I think I'll leave it there, and I look forward to entertaining your questions. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, now's your time. Um, we will take questions, um, and if you write down the cards and hold them up, our, our uh, program assistants will pick them up. Generally, there are more questions than there are times to answer it, and particularly with an August panel as this, that's always a challenge. But I can promise you that uh, we will get through, we, to paraphrase Charles de Gaulle when he was asked about the French nuclear capability to kill the Russian bear, we may not kill it, but we will rip an arm off it. So with that in mind, let's rip some arms off. The first question, how effective has U.S. funding of Saudi Arabian military counterterrorism strategy been? Let's ask that Mr. Thomas. Oh, he's going to be next. I'm going I'm to let you go, and then I'm going to let him come do it. We'll do a point-counterpoint. <laughs> well... To the specific issue of funding, I'm not familiar with the, the numbers, but I know the investment in our counterterrorism cooperation has been significant and has a, a, deep, a deep history. And it's multidimensional, and I think you heard that in Noaf's uh, talk. It's not just about the military capabilities needed to defend the kingdom and the capabilities necessary to be part of a global coalition to defeat ISIS. It's about the diplomatic cooperation, the economic cooperation, the work done in the information space, particularly in the cyber domain to counter the radical narratives and disrupt the financing. Uh, it's a multi-dimensional degree of cooperation and 
my, my judgment has been, it's been quite effective. Um, and it's been an inherent part of the strategy to defeat ISIS specifically. Um, I worked on the development of that original strategy in the summer of 2014 and partnering with both the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and our other Gulf partners and many others was an inherent and integral part of that strategy. Noah? Sure, and uh, I agree with everything you had just mentioned. And uh, I, I think the key thing here that, that is, is full trust. Full trust in that the goals are the same. Uh, the, the cooperation is at an all-time high. Uh, I'll give you just a perspective from the United Nations. Uh, Saudi Arabia is the largest donor to the United Nations Counterterrorism Center, the second largest in the United States. Uh, we work closely in a lot of the uh, listings in the UN uh, sanctions list, uh, and, and we keep each other updated uh, in that regard. Um, and, and so I, I think now there's full trust on all levels, and that's only going to enhance the results uh, that you see on the ground uh, and in institutions such as the United Nations. Wonderful. And as a professor, let me make a pedantic point. The question said, how effective has U.S. funding of Saudi Arabian military counterterrorism strategy been? And being pedantic, I should note, first off, the U.S. doesn't fund much in Saudi Arabia. We don't give them anything. They pay, and they generally pay top dollar for everything. And secondly, military counterterrorism strategy is a counterterrorism strategy that is ineffective. The, the real um, uh, counterterrorism is whole of government in Saudi Arabia, at least for terrorism within the kingdom, has been very effective under a program run by the Ministry of the Interior. Second question. This will go to Mr. Blanchard and Dr. Carlin. What or who serves as the largest obstacle to the furtherment of U.S.-Arab cooperation, particularly on defense and FMS sales? Christopher? Well, I'm hesitant to identify uh, any one actor as, a, as an obstacle. Uh, I will say a continual challenge um, is alignment, uh, both of interest and action, uh, in ways where, um, uh, particularly uh, on the U.S. side, those seeking domestic political support, and in particular legislative support, um, can credibly paint a picture that says uh, a current uh, uh, or an individual uh, instance of U.S. partnership with, with uh, a Middle Eastern uh, government is producing results. Um, we see uh, challenges along these lines, um, not just with governments. Um, the, the Syria question about the YPG and the Turks is a clear uh, uh, indication of this. The challenges that can be created by um, misaligned definitions of interest. Uh, and I think the conflict in Yemen is another indication where uh, the pursuit of multiple interests uh, has created um, uh, some bumps in the road uh, and may do uh, more of that in the future. Thank you. Dr. Carlin. I'll build on that a bit. I really like uh, the points Chris highlighted and would add two. One, uh, the bureau bureaucracy. Effectively, the U.S. system is designed to constrain action. So for any of us who have worked on defense cooperation, um, having personally been responsible for probably uh, more than a billion or so on that front to the Middle East, um, our system is just slow. And that is a good thing for every reason except that it means people are often unsatisfied and often frustrated. So that exists. The other piece, which is one that can be controlled by those in the region, is a real focus on tying needs to threats. So the way the U.S. military figures out what it needs for the future 
is it assesses the future security environment. In particular, it says, based on the changes in that evolving security environment, what are the conflicts, what are the wars that the US military might have to get into? That is paired with the US ambition and together builds a strategy. Ideally, money is then put towards that. And so there is a clear line, in theory, sometimes debatable in practice, behind where the strategy is going and where the money is going. To the extent governments in the region can show that picture clearly, it will be an increasingly compelling case in Washington. And the view from the coal face from Colonel DeHook. Uh, well, I can, I can add also uh, agree on definition of a threat, because defining a threat is very important. So whether it's a terrorism threat or a conventional threat or friend and foe. And then also on, on building partner capacity, I think we start, we have to do a building partnership capacity, means we have to, we have to build the capacity together, us and allies. And we can be stronger than our allies, but at the end of the day, we have to fight with them. So when, when you build this partner capacity, you have to look at, at, at a holistic capacity, because as you see today's world, for example, counter defeat ISIS campaign, you have over 60 nations are actually fighting together, over maybe 14 or 15 air forces doing together. So you're, you're as strong as your weakest link. So if you have a if you call somebody a partner, then you have to actually work with them as a partner. And then, uh, you know, you, you just have to build it simultaneously. Um, I'll leave it as that. That's good. For our two strategists, Colonel Thomas, strategists, Colonel Thomas, Dr. Carlin. The, the Middle East is either religious controlled, military controlled, or monarchies. None, this is neither, none of the governments are democratically elected governments. Why are we here? Colonel Thomas. <laughs> well, I, I think this is easier to answer than it, than it may seem. Um, so the U.S. is guided by its national interests and across all administrations. Those national interests have generally fallen into four, four categories. One has to do with our own security, another our economic prosperity, a third our values, promoting them in the world, and a fourth upholding a liberal international order. I'm not certain whether those four interests will remain our four interests into the foreseeable future, but they have been over the last administrations going back to, to, uh, to uh, Ronald Reagan's first national security strategy and certainly well beyond that. And all four of those national interests are at stake in the Middle East. Our security, our, our economy is tied to the economic prosperity of the region. Um, our values, uh, it's a long game in alignment on, on values, but there's lots of shared um, interests and values. And then certainly the countries in the Middle East have a role to play in upholding the international order. Dr. Carlin. I'd wholly agree. Might add, we're, we're here to dialogue about these very important issues. We care what happens in this region for the reasons that Troy delineated. I'd also question the premise of the question, however. While rather flawed, I think you could argue there are actually quite a handful of democracies in the region. If you look at places like Tunisia or Lebanon or Iraq or Israel. Okay. Mr. Althari and Mr. Blanchard. What do you expect Syria to look like after the civil war is over? And do you see a resolution with Bashar al-Assad in power? Syed Authority. Yeah, well, roughly. Um, 
It's, it's, it's very hard to predict. Uh, what I will say is, as long as uh, Iranian intervention is prevalent in, in that country, uh, I do not see stability in, in the future for Syria, whether Bashar al-Assad is in power mm -hmm. or not. Uh, there has to be a concerted effort to drive Iranian influence out of the country and allow the Syrian people to dictate their future for themselves. Mr. Blanchard? I, I would just add, I think the relevant perspective is that of the Syrian people. Um, and it'll be uh, their, when they view the civil war and the uh, civil strife as being complete, when they feel safe enough to return to their homes, whether as IDPs or refugees, um, that we should all respect that. Um, and not necessarily, uh, I think Syria has suffered quite a bit uh, by outsiders um, pursuing their interests in ways that uh, have redounded to the detriment of the people on the ground. So that's what I'd say about that. Okay. Colonel Duhuk has. Well, uh, I don't disagree, but I think also um, United, Russia is already in Syria, and Russia is there to stay for a long time. So I think probably. Uh, Yes, you know, the, obviously the Syrian people has a major, major vote in the process, but the, a dialogue has to happen between Russia and the United States to see what's, what's, what are their interests in there, how they meet. If they, if they meet on a common interest, I think it will be beneficial to the Syrian people, and if they don't, uh, the, the biggest winner will, will be Iran and Hezbollah. Okay. Uh, and our, this will go to Colonel Dehouk. Dr. Carlin and Mr. Troy. An argument, or Colonel, Colonel Thomas, I'm sorry. Yeah, forgive me. Uh, this is, I tell you, life's, life's hard enough uh, without dyslexia. Uh, an argument can be made that the GCC has fractured due to the embargo blockade of Qatar. Given the extensive U.S. defense arrangements with Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, et cetera, and the criticality of El Yadid Air Base, what does all this say for Arab-U.S. defense cooperation? Want to try that first? Certainly. Well, I think one of the points of my remarks, and maybe a theme you've heard up here, is that uh, U.S.-Arab defense cooperation is a long game, right? It, uh, there's been ups and downs, two steps forward, one step back throughout its, throughout its history. I think our shared uh, interest, ought to be our shared interest, and hopefully our shared aim, is that there is a political reconciliation to the disagreements among the, the GCC countries, particularly on this issue of, of uh, Qatar, greater political alignment in the future, and that the progress that has been made in the past on uh, security cooperation by the GCC will continue. The U.S. is well positioned to be supportive of that process because we have a rich uh, defense relationship with all of the the countries in the in the Gulf, and we're well positioned to help facilitate the dialogue, and ultimately uh, bring everybody back together and move the GCC forward, which I believe will eventually happen. Okay. Um, I mean, if you look the last uh, probably two decades, there was a lot of up and up and up and downs and political disagreement between Saudi Arabia and United States, and despite all these political disagreements, the mill-to-mill -mill relationship remained constant. Uh, so while you see disagreements amongst the GCC, uh, that multi-mill relationship uh, it will, it will remain constant. 
so, uh, and there is a great interest for the United States to be there, and continue to be there, and there's a greater interest for the, at least the GCC countries to maintain that at least the military, uh, which is the glue, I, I look at it in that relationship, to stay, to stay as strong as it is right now. Dr. Carlin? It's really unhelpful. I will be very blunt about that. The U.S. posture is distributed across the Middle East in a number of the countries that were just cited. To the extent that the U.S. posture can work together and those countries in a collaborative, cooperative way, it is all the better for not just us, us, uh, us facing threats, but also enhancing our ability to face threats. So integrated air and missile defense, maritime security, border security, all of which are key to the Gulf. And so not knowing how long this disunity will last, or frankly, how wide the continuum is for it, and at what stage, perhaps, the U.S. posture will be under question is really, really problematic. When you look at those who have benefited from this disunity, it, I would argue, is not those in the Gulf, it is also not the United States. It is arguably those who have a different vision of what the region should look like. Dr. Anthony, you wanna pile in on that? I agree with that last sentence. Um, uh, no one in the region, <coughs> uh, perceptually from my seat, uh, has gained or is gaining uh, from what has occurred on that. I also agree with um, Troy that uh, we, in terms of our military defense establishment, armed forces, personnel, have from the beginning played the long game. So have the uh, forces in the region. Uh, so have, too, the uh, American aerospace and defense industry. Do not leave them out of the equation. They're, they're players. They have influence. They pressure. They lobby. Uh, they have um, impact on key senators and uh, armed services committee and the like. Uh, so they're in that for the long game as well. And uh, there are two countries that have gained the most from this disunity. Uh, one is east of the GCC countries and one is west of it. And neither are the United uh, States. This very question was asked uh, me by a minister of a GCC country the day we invaded uh, Iraq in 2003. Uh, and I had a delegation with me, uh, U.S. Central Command delegation, and uh, that question was put by one of the officers, and the minister said, we, we have to be very careful here. We want so much from the United States uh, in terms of education, in terms of science, in terms of technology, in terms of people-to-people -people relations, in terms of quality goods, in terms of technical know-how, in terms of uh, work ethos. Um, and let's face it, uh, whether we uh, like or dislike America's politics, uh, the United States is the world's single largest militarily, financially, economically, scientifically, technologically, and educationally power. And uh, we cannot see ourselves defended 
all that we have gained in the last three, four decades unassociated uh, with a power greater than ourselves whose interests are in some cases aligned with ours, they're identical, other cases they're supplemental or complementary, uh, but by and large the net interest of the two is that both gain uh, from continuing despite these bumps in the road. That. Next question from Mr. Blanchard, Mr. Athari. Given conventional views on Iranian bad behavior in the Middle East, why do we so often find ourselves on the same time as the Iranians in the Middle East, namely, one, the initial defeat of the Taliban in Afghanistan, two, the removal of Saddam Hussein's regime, and most recently, three, opposition to the Kurdish independence vote? Would you like to take a whack at that, please, Chris? You don't, you don't have to agree with the examples. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me specify that. You don't have to agree with the examples. Um, well, I, yeah, I would, I would push back at the premise that um, we're, we're on the, necessarily on the same side. Um, I think uh, having heard yesterday a, a, a fairly, uh, uh, I think, enlightening description both of Iraq's uh, view of the current situation um, from Ambassador Yassin, uh, and a, a summary, an academic view of, of Iran's perspective. Um, to the extent that both the United States and Iran um, <coughs> want a government in Baghdad that can provide for its own security um, with regard to keeping the Islamic State and its uh, descendants uh, or replacements at bay. Um, you'll probably continue to be able to, if you so choose, define in broad terms the United States and Iran as uh, in the terms of the questioner on the same side. Similarly, I don't think it's terribly surprising um, that uh, United States policy has sought to, uh, as the State Department uh, has expounded during the current referendum question, to preserve Iraq's territorial integrity it's no surprise, given Iran's demographic makeup, uh, that it has similar concerns about its own Kurdish and Arab minorities. So again, from a strictly objective and clinical perspective, it's not terribly surprising. And those who wish or seek to do so could describe, again, as those interests being aligned. Um, now, there's a, a big difference between that alignment of interest and the sorts of cooperation and partnership that we're up here to talk about today. Um, the close relationships, the exchanges, um, the security cooperation. Um, and I don't think those things should be confused. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll leave it. No? Uh, you know, I think for a while there, it was uh, convenient to have some of these uh, goals align and, and uh, in certain areas, but I think now there's a there's a realization, and and it's undeniable uh, that um, th their pursuits are for other goals rather than the goals that we we share with the United States, we as in Saudi Arabia and and the rest of the anti-ISIS coalition. Um, they, their destabilizing activities have been well documented. Uh, world's leading sponsor of terrorism. Uh, and so now I feel uh, 
the vision has kind of converged and, and, and they're, they've been exposed for what their true motives are. Okay. <clears throat> Excellent. Yes, please. Uh, well, that's classic, like when, when two countries have the same enemy, doesn't mean they are friends. This is the kind of fits exactly what Iran is, fits in this, uh, this picture. And I think we always talk about Iran as a monolithic entity. You know, we have to start looking at Iran as not a monolithic entity. There's many elements in there. And everybody's dis in disagreement, not with the, with the Persians or the Iranian people, it's with the Iranian regime. Not even the Shiite, you know, of Iran is the Iranian regime. So, um, so again, you know, interests are the, the same, but uh, definitely we're not, we're not friends. That's exactly right. Got a question that we'll, we'll give every panelist a chance to uh, discuss. We'll go from right to left. Um, U.S. laws tend to tag to lag behind technological change. What is the greatest legal impediment to enhance security cooperation with the Arab world? And I think they mean uh, American legal impediment. Chris, do you want to take a whack at that? Um, <clears throat> well, I'm, I'm remiss to describe my, my clients up on the, on the hill as being uh, negligent and, or, or presenting obstacles. Um, <laughs> from, my, from my perspective, I, 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 see, uh, I see U.S. Arab security and defense cooperation as, um, as you know, among the most robust in the world, um, as one that delivers high quality, uh, high dollar value, high capability systems and capabilities to partners um, with whom the United States works uh, in pursuit of, of shared security interests. Um, now there's, a, uh, there's certainly a, a legal um, regulatory and oversight framework that sits around that. Um, um, I think speaking as an American, uh, and again globally, not just with regard to this region, that that's a good thing. Um, mm -hmm. And I think in spite of, um, you know, some of its challenges and difficulties, um, it nevertheless uh, underwrites and provides for uh, the robust relationships uh, and partnerships that uh, are evident in the remarks that you've heard today. Okay. Dr. Carlin? So I might paint a picture of how the technological landscape is changing almost academically, and I'd wholly agree with everything Chris just said. So it is very hard, I think, for our laws to start to appreciate, frankly, even for our policymakers to start to appreciate what's happening technologically. I'll offer just a couple examples. One, first mover advantage. It used to be that when you had the first step technologically, think about things like stealth, for example, in the defense <laughs> sphere, it was worth a lot. You were buying a lot of time, some, you know, something really meaningful. As the landscape has changed, first mover advantage is worth much less, not least because there are certain countries that will just steal a lot of that information and, uh, and take advantage of it. Another is just proliferation. We've seen this with drones, for example. It's really easy to buy things now on Amazon that didn't even exist 10, 15 years ago and that are changing the face of warfare. You know, talk to the Marines about their counter drone efforts right now and you can really hear about how they've had to to adapt to this new element of conflict. Um, the one that worries me the most is actually autonomy and how autonomous systems, so systems that are making decisions about where to go and what to do, how that is going to change the picture. And I think legally and also from a policy perspective, the U.S. approach will be very, very constrained 
and nervous, and some of that will be warranted, it'll also probably put the United States and any of its partners at a little bit of a disadvantage. Okay. Do you want to comment on that, Dr. I think it's the panel. Um, is the question, what are the legal obstacles? Le legal obstacles, legal and policy obstacles to enhance cooperation. Uh, the uh, question on the legal and policy obstacles, I, I would turn it upside down, inside out, and backwards on its head and ask <clears throat> what are the constitutional obstacles, which are above both, at least are supposed to be, by sworn um, testimony and, and, and oaths taken by people in public service in the Congress and senior positions in the executive branch. And my frame of reference here is uh, Article 6 of the Constitution, which states uh, all laws, treaties, and international conventions to which the United States is a solemn signatory are the supreme law of the land. We are members of the United Nations Security Council through treaty. Uh, we are members of the Fourth Geneva Convention through treaty. Uh, we don't have any political obstacles or legal obstacles uh, uh, to enforce or abide by either one, which would make a profound, fundamental, pervasive difference uh, for the better. Uh, so when we talk about uh, we're looking for partners who respect international law or the norms of international behavior, we can hold up a mirror and ask, um, why don't we? Uh, and we have the constitutional green light to do it. There is no legal, political obstacle to enforce international law to which we are a treaty partner. None. Uh, technical, legal, uh, policy obstacles to enhance U.S.-Arab defense cooperation. Well, it's one. You said policy, right? So policy po po can be policy. So the policy is it, it can be changed. I mean, the policy. It's, yes. It's, it's it's our policy how we see it. Um, I mean, it's um, if 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 this if our perspectives our policy. Uh, towards a certain country or a certain uh, conflict in the Middle East changes, that will facilitate uh, all security assistance. Security assistance, security uh, cooperation is hinges on the political process, political on the hinges on what, how the administration is seeing things. So it's not a sacrosanct, it's not constitutional, mm -hmm. it just, it depends. I mean, it just really, it depends. It depends on the conflict, depends on what country, as you know, it uh, depends what's going on within the country. So it's hard to define and have to say, it's hard to put your finger on a certain, certain uh, you know, uh, law or, or thing to change to enhance uh, the, this, this uh, cooperation. Okay. Mr. Thari? You know, when you engage with these uh, big tech companies on uh, mm -hmm. extremist content online, the conversation always manifests itself into a, a legal conversation. And uh, the reasons why these companies have been more effective in taking down these materials in other countries uh, manifests itself in, in, the, in the legal systems of that country. So I think there needs to be, and I'm not going to speak on other countries' legal systems here, but I think there needs to be a healthy dialogue 
with these tech companies within the respective jurisdictions and, and, and figure out a legal framework so that they are not uh, liable for uh, the content that goes on there, but also are cooperative so that they're not operating from a defensive standpoint. Rather, they are cooperating with the governments to help take down these mm -hmm. entities and not, uh, not have them covering themselves uh, hinder their ability to effectively take this content down. And so I think there's a much needed legal conversation that needs to be had there uh, with the big tech companies. Hmm. Interesting. Mr. Toms? Well, a lot, of great, a lot of great points, all of which I had made, but let me just make a few more. I'll start with a, a point Chris made earlier, which is that the, the, the primary obstacle to better defense cooperation is an alignment of interests. And that's, that's where it all starts. So it's a political, it's a political question, not a, not a legal question. That said, the, the degree of defense cooperation is remarkable and been quite successful. Where there are challenges, they do tend to be around um, what Mara brought earlier, which is sort of the, the speed at which the bureaucracy moves. There are issues, I think, with our export control and our tech transfer and our information sharing, all things that have been the subject of reform over recent, over recent years and can continue to get better. My own view is we can take greater risk with both tech transfer and intelligence sharing. Intelligence sharing in particular is a low cost, high payoff way to build trust, which underpins most security cooperation. Most of it leaks anyway, so we might as well share it. Yeah, that's um, right. And on the issue of, of emerging technologies, I did work on, on uh, at least on uh, uh, autonomous systems and genome editing while I was at the, at the White House. And in both cases, it's hard to create laws when the technologies are so immature. And in many cases, the, te the technologies themselves have to mature further before you can put in place smart regulatory frameworks. So sometimes just patient, patience uh, makes sense. Now, I think we can all agree we don't want like nuclear armed robots in space, so maybe we could get around that. Um, but there are other ones where just the implications are not yet quite clear. Yeah. Well, let me abuse the prerogative of the chair. My specific recommendations for looking at the missile transfer control regime, and I think that, that that law was designed in a world where there were conventional, basically where SCUD was the um, state of the art, and what we're seeing now is that that inhibits the uh, export of uh, armed drones which uh, everybody wants and which the United States is unable to export because of that. And also certain uh, defensive anti-missile missiles because they're in excess of either the payload or the range restriction or the MCTR. So that's my, that's my specific, that's my one, it's not a law, it's a voluntary agreement, but that's, that's what I would focus on redoing to enhance cooperation that's, in that's the virtual. Is that a good one? That's a good one. Do I meet with universal approval phone? Well, thank you for coming today. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, well, that's good. Uh, next question, again, we'll throw this open to the full panel. Um, uh, Colonel Thomas, um, I'm gonna make a favorable reference to you since I'm basking in the glow of your approval. Um, you mentioned four areas, missile defense, maritime, cyber, and border. Which one of these would have the biggest payoff for a U.S. focus? And uh, we'll give you the most time to think about it since I put you on the spot. We'll start with Mr. Blanchard. Oh, I know it. I love it. <laughs> you got to stay awake here. <laughs> Clearly. I was ready, Chris. You go ahead. <laughs> um, I, I, I tend to, it's boring, uh, but I do think that uh, border security is essential. Uh, I think the capabilities that are available to, um, to increasingly capable non-state actors 
and uh, both criminal, terrorist, and otherwise, um, really do pose a very formidable risk um, that, uh, you know, it's low-hanging fruit as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, and given, uh, given the challenges that we're seeing our Saudi partners face on, on their southern border, um, we're seeing uh, our Egyptian partners uh, uh, face with regard to Libya. Um, these are things uh, that, that we can and should continue to invest in. Uh, and again, it, for me, it's the, it's the easiest and lowest hanging fruit um, for sort of trans-regional investment. Dr. Border security is exactly the right answer. You know, when you look at Max Weber, you know, many, many years ago, as he was talking about a state, he's talking about monopolies on violence, right? A state being able to exert its sovereignty throughout its territory, and that comes down to border security. Furthermore, there are mm. diminishing marginal returns to investments in missile defense and in cyber. Mm. Good point. Colonel uh, DeHook? Well, I have to say missile defense more than uh, borders. I give you an example of what's going on in, uh, in Israel, for example. They do have a tight control of who goes in, who goes out, goes out but they're having a hard time controlling those, you know, rudimentary missiles that are coming out of Hamas and, uh, and, and Hezbollah. I'll go with the missile defense. And second would be, I agree, their cyber is also very, very important. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if you noticed the theme in, in what I've been saying, but I would rank it cyber, cyber, cyber. Yes. Uh, that, that, that for, for us in, in my line of work, that, that is the most important one. Obviously, they're all very important, but, uh, you know, given recent events that we've all seen uh, unfold here in the United States and in other countries, I think there is a need to invest in the cybersecurity space, and, and that space breaks down into a lot of different subcategories as well, so we can talk about what, which priorities need to go in that in those subcategories as well? But well, well, give me your first priority. Well, uh, obviously, investing in technology that's that that's able to take down extremist content and and mm -hmm. dismantle recruitment networks online. Mm -hmm. I mean, the fact that these platforms are being abused right before us right. Uh, is 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 the biggest concerning factor. Uh, but there are. A lot of uh, a lot of great organizations that are working on tech solutions right now, and I'm a technology optimist, so I be truly believe that the solution uh, is is in investing in that space. Okay, Mr. Thomas, waiting for the magisterial. Well, I, was I was hoping to break a break a tie, but I don't I don't get to. I, I of course I of course like them all, but I think I too would probably put border security at the top, and this one was a real surprise to me. Um, I had mentioned. Uh, traveling with uh, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs Staff, General Dempsey, for a couple years, and then I worked uh, security assistance at the White House, and it was striking to me how border security came up in every conversation. Mm -hmm. And that's a particularly challenging area to, to work on, as, as uh, David pointed out earlier, because actually the responsibility for border security is shared, at least in the U.S. government. The Department of Homeland Security has a border security security assistance function. So the cooperation that has to go on here makes it more complicated to develop that capability abroad. So I think of it as a sort of an emerging area of security cooperation that's going to require all of us to sort of work across some interagency boundaries. And uh, so I think it's kind of remarkable that it's a sort of a common theme here today as well. Yeah. Well, then in that case, let me um, defer from the conventional wisdom. Um, and uh, I, I should first off, I should give a little footnote. When you when you leave here. This building is the headquarters of the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Agency, which is a 
major, one of the seven major components of the Department of Homeland Security. Most Americans only refer to the Border Patrol, which patrols the areas between ports. And you'll see the people out here, they're the ones in the green uniforms. But the ones in the blue uniforms work at the port. That's the Office of Field Operations. They actually have the more difficult job because they have to facilitate legitimate commerce while interdicting illegitimate commerce. So um, uh, everybody always says the Border Patrol. They neglect what I think is the key thing. I would argue that it is maritime. And the reason I would argue that it's maritime is that, and yeah, I know. I see, I see the midshipmen nodding happily, and yes, I. I <laughs> relish this moment. Um, uh, the reason why is because I think that a maritime threat, particularly for these countries, all of these countries are dependent on free sea communication to maintain modern standards of living, and the maritime threat only has to be disruptive, not dominant, which means that we and our allies have to be dominant. And now, having given you the moment of approval, let me abuse my power, young sailor, to dump on you and say the United States Navy has systemically uh, underinvested in mine, countermine warfare since the 1950s. Since the 1950s. The Inchon landing was supposed to be a double envelopment, but the East Coast landing was scrapped because of mines. And those mines were eventually swept by the Imperial Japanese Navy or uh, remnants of the Imperial Japanese Navy. Uh, and then let me go further and chastise our allies. It is remarkable to me, given the vulnerability of particularly the Gulf Cooperation Council states, that they have not invested more in their own domestic uh, countermine warfare capacity. Um, an objective look at threats and resources, they should be the global leaders in this technology. They most emphatically are not, and I think that that is, is a secure a security lapse. That was almost persuasive. Sing it. Please speak. That was almost persuasive. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. I'm, I'm aware I'm straying. I'm straying a foot a little bit, but uh, um, I, I get a thumbs up from Dr. Carlin. So uh, it was quite nearly persuasive. Quite nearly, marginally, marginally persuasive. This this is my second language. Um, all right, cyber. Question, we'll start with you, Mr. Othari, and then we'll throw it open to whoever wants to do it. Um, is taking extremists off social media dysfunctional because they then migrate to a less interdictable forum? So I, I, I suppose the, the thrust of the question is, shouldn't we keep them there so we can identify them and then take action against them, uh, or are we just forcing them further into the shadows where we can't deal with them? Well, then you're just playing a constant game of whack-a-mole at that point, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's, um, I, I think we're underestimating the technological capabilities uh, that, that the tech giants have right now. Uh, we're on the brink of an artificial intelligence revolution that can possibly predict when someone is going to post extremist content before they do. Uh, so we, we really have to analyze the technological landscape before uh, asking a question like that because uh, the possibilities that when you sit down and we, you talk to these companies, uh, the possibilities that are there uh, are, are inconceivable at times when, 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 you, when, mm -hmm. when you hear what they're working on and, and, and they're doing a lot of great projects and then the conversation turns back into that legal discussion that, uh, that we talked mm -hmm. about as to how to um, implement these technologies without 
the companies showing that they're vulnerable in this regard, right? Yeah. yeah. Do you think ultimately they will be um, regulated, internet providers, social media providers, will be regulated by legislation or by litigation? That's a tough one. Yes, uh, it is. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure, but uh, I, don't, I, I don't think it should be. Okay. Either way, because then, then you minimize uh, uh, the ability for innovation uh, in terms of right. combating these groups and their postings online. Good. Would somebody else like to take a whack at that? Nope. Nope. We've. Well, I add yes, on. please, Colonel Dehoof. I think also on cyber, we have to look at it. Don't not wait just for these bad actors to get on the system. You got to have to find a way to interdict them before you get to that system. You know, there's also that that way too. So to instead of having the firewalls in front of you on your system before you or your, in your institution, that firewall has to be way out there at the at the initiator level somewhere out there. That's absolutely correct. Yeah, that's great. Well, we have one final question. It is, who cuts Colonel DeRoche's hair? And whoever you are, I will find you. Uh, so, so with that in mind, uh, as always, the uh, last, first off, let's hear it for our panelists uh, for a wonderful discussion at the end of the day.